Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, good to be back with you again. If I haven't met you, my name is Norm. I'm a pastor of a small little replant work in Vancouver, um, and I bring greetings from it, uh, a church called Midtown. Uh, we're gathering right now as, as we meet together here, so it's good to be with you. If you have a Bible, 1 Kings chapter 19, find the book of 1 Kings. may have been a while since you've been in 1 Kings. Um, as you find the chapter, like I said, 1 Kings chapter 19, we're looking at verses 1 to 16. Let me stop and pray, and then we'll start walking through the text. Father, I thank you for the, the allowance of this gathering. I thank you for the relaxation of some of the restrictions. Um, I, I thank you for the sunshine and the, and the summertime. I know people are heading to the beaches and the hills uh, during this time, so I pray those that are a part of this body who aren't here today, um, that um, not only would you meet with them, but they would seek you out, finding their rest, not only in their holidays, but their rest ultimately in you, and I say the same same for us, uh, that we would meet with you today, that you would meet with us by way of your spirit and the book your spirit wrote that we're going to teach out of today. So I pray for, your, I pray for your, your presence. I pray that you'd be pleased with this time. Guide me, use me in spite of me. I'm a man most fallible. So help me as I teach today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're dropping in on a text that is... Um, really centered around an individual named Elijah. Um, don't get him confused with Elisha. Elisha is coming, Elijah is first. Elijah is a prophet. He's a spokesman on behalf of God to the people of Israel. But he lived during the reign of a king named Ahab. Ahab was an evil king, uh, but he was married to an even more evil woman, a queen named Jezebel. There's a reason why you don't name your daughters Jezebel. That's because of Jezebel. And, but this is when Elijah did his, did his business, did his ministry work. Uh, not a, exactly high water mark in the monarchy of Israel. Uh, Elijah is, is pretty well known. He played a, a key role in a, a lot of different events in Israel's history, but what he's probably best known for, other than never dying, there's that, but in addition to that, what he's best known for was defending the honor of God against the worship of Baal, the false deity of the wicked, idolatrous, baby-sacrificing Canaanites. What's interesting about Baal, however, is that that was the God that Ahab and Esther worshiped. Uh, in an event that most typifies this work of Elijah, just a chapter earlier in chapter 18, it records this wonderful moment where Elijah takes down 450 prophets of Baal, demonstrating God's power. How the God of Israel was the God that had power, that the God of, of the Canaanites really had no power at all. He, had, he was really no God at all. The end result of that standoff, if you look at verse 40 of chapter 18, is, is, is recorded there. Let me just read it for you. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape, and they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. An issue arises though, Jezebel catches wind of what's taken place and to say the least, she's uh, apoplectic. 
She's besides her, beside herself, which takes us to chapter 19. I'll just read the first couple of verses just to show you what I mean. Ahab, that's the king, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger, messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, Elijah, you're a dead man walking. By this time tomorrow, my goal is to have you dead just like you killed the 450 prophets of Baal. So what does Elijah do? This great prophet of God who had just stood the test, right, God in the grill just one chapter earlier, what does he do? This man of faith, this spokesman of God. Well, take a look at verse three. This is what he does. Then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life. That's what he did. Chapter 18, penthouse moment, right? Chapter 19, just one chapter later, Outhouse moment, that's, that's Elijah. That's where we find him in chapter 19. Drop down to verse nine, same chapter, and let's pick things, up, pick things up there. We read in verse nine. There he, that's Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? In, in other words, Elijah, what are you doing? doing in a cave. Now, you may know this already, but if you don't, just going to share this for you or to you, with you. <laughs> God doesn't ask questions for his sake. God asks questions for our sake. Whenever you come to a question of God in the scriptures, your antennas should go up. So God asks a question of Elijah, and Elijah responds, take a look at it in verse 10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord. You could substitute the word zealous. I've been very passionate for the glory of the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So there's his answer. If you must know God, why I'm here, I'm running for my life. Because the queen and her people want to kill me. But here's what I wanna push in a little bit with coming out of this answer. Is that the reason why? Is that the true reason why Elijah found himself where he, where he does in chapter 10? Now, on the one hand, it is true. Elijah was afraid. I mean, the, the text tells us that he was afraid. He was in a cave because he was running for his life. He didn't want to, to die, but as is that the real reason why? And doesn't the fact that God asks him why he's in a cave suggest that there's a reason beneath the reason, that there's something deeper going on? Yes, I know you're afraid, but why are you so afraid that you find yourself in a cave? Here's what I'd like to suggest, and this is the premise, my whole premise for this message that I build the rest of this message on. What I would like to propose or suggest is the reason why Elijah was, was in a cave wasn't primarily because he was afraid, but because he was having a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith coming because he was disappointed with God, 
perhaps even angry at God, and felt like he deserved better. I mean, doesn't his answer just suggest that? I mean, take a look at verse 10 just one more time. He said, I have been very jealous for you, God. I mean, I just stood up against those 450 prophets. I, I, I made you look so great. I was so faithful. When the whole nation isn't faithful, when they're tearing down your altars, when they're worshiping false gods, and I'm all by myself in that, God. That's why I'm here. I mean, just think about it. Think about what just took place, and this is the, the reward he gets. He gets a hit put out on his life. I don't mean to be insensitive to Elijah's situation, but I'd like to suggest that Elijah was in a cave because he felt sorry for himself and feeling, feeling that way because his expectations of God weren't, weren't being met. He was disillusioned with God, and he felt ripped off. The result is what? He's no longer living by faith and courage, but now he's living in despondency and fear. And that's what he's saying to himself. While he's huddled in hiding, that's what he's speaking, speaking into his life. Over the, over the years, um, I have sought the help of many counselors in my life, both Counselors to help in ministry, counselors to help in decision processes that I may be going through, counselors to help in my marriage with my wife. So biblical counselors, ministry-based counselors, executive coach-type counselors. But do you know who counsels me more than anybody else? Me. Same with you. No, nobody talks to me more than me. And nobody talks to you more than you. And so often, we are the worst type of counselors. Like, we would lose our license if we said to others what we say to ourselves, right? Isn't that true? And it's usually two extremes. Our self-counsel is, I suck. I'm horrible. I'm beyond hope. There's no, there's no way any good's going to come out of this. There's that extreme. We say that all the time. Or the other extreme is what? You deserve better, man. This is the reward you get after being so faithful, honoring the name of God, doing the right, I mean, this, this is it. Just consider what you've, you've done for him. And we say it over and over and over again. And what I'm arguing for is, it, could it possibly be that this latter extreme, that you deserve better than this, could have been the kind of counsel Elijah was giving to Elijah, and because of that, he was, he was in a cave. Any of you in a cave right now? I mean, it's been a hard 18 months, man. We've spent a lot of time by ourselves. Gone through a lot of stuff. So any of you in a cave right now? Any of you feeling put up, put off, upset? Any of you feeling entitled? 
It's easy to get there, isn't it? Think about what others have and you don't. And you're more faithful than them. More devoted than they are. And they have that, you don't have that. And if you're living in a place of fear right now, maybe you're not angry at God, maybe you're just afraid. Any of you in that place, is, is that the cave you're kind of hanging out in, feeling faithless, feeling despondent, feeling ripped off, whatever? Any of you, I'll ask one more time, any finding yourself in a place like that? If you are, here's the question, and I'll borrow the question from, from God. What are you doing there? Like, what are, you, what are you doing here, Elijah? Like, why are you in this cave, Elijah? Is there a chance, just to have a follow-up question, is there a chance that you've chosen to be there? I mean, I get why you're possibly afraid. I get why you're possibly angry. But why are you there? What voices are you listening to? What counsel are you taking? What are you saying to yourself? What are you no longer believing, but believing now instead? All of this, uh, Shore Church is set up. All of it up to this point is set up for what takes place next. For what takes place in chapter, or verse 10 of chapter 19 hereafter is the restoration of Elijah. Where we will see Elijah move out of this cave back to full restoration. Back to chapter 18 Elijah in a sense. But we can learn some things too. So if you're feeling in that place, let's see what we can learn about the restoration of Elijah. And it begins, we've already seen, it begins with the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And therefore, his was a restoration, and so too for us. His was a restoration that called for honest self-evaluation. That's where it begins. And the same is true for us. When we find ourselves in cave-like times, we need to reflect and we need to have the questions that go beneath the surface that take us there. And the question is, why are you here? At, at the heart of it. Yes, I know you're afraid, but why are you afraid? I know you're angry, but why are you angry? This demands that we dig beneath the surface in this. Not that we state the obvious, but we dig down farther and we consider the deeper emotions and, and feelings that have led to our current state. Again, perhaps feelings of entitlement. I deserve better. Or need of recognition or an expectation of ease. Or, or a craving of status or position or a reward that hasn't come yet. Perhaps God knowing what you do in your life and God rewarding you for it isn't enough. You need the recognition of others too. And if you don't get the recognition of others too, you won't be ha happy. That God's seen in secret and re rewarding you in secret just isn't enough. R restoration, if you're in these places, must begin here. For restoration demands that we consider the root of the problem and not simply the result of it. What's the root of it? 
Questions like these are absolutely necessary for most often our dishonesty with others and ourselves isn't shown in what we say but in what we don't. So God asks Elijah and he asks us too, why are you here? (coughs) But that's just the beginning. For restoration second calls us to hear from God again. That's number two. Take a look at verses 11 to 14, one of the more well-known passages in the Old Testament. I'll read it. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in, in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out. And he stood at the entrance of the cave and behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. You probably picked it up, but the question that is posed in verse 13 is the exact same question that is posed in verse 9, and the answer in verse 14 is the answer that Elijah gave in verse 10. So what's the difference? I think it's that Elijah was ready to hear this time. Or he's just so off his game that he's missed the point entirely of the exercise that he just went through. It could be that, but it doesn't really matter. At least it doesn't matter to us at least because we have the luxury of of slowing down and considering what, what God wants us to see. And what does God want us to see in this earth, wind, and fire? Great band, by the way, earth, wind, and fire situation. Well, What he wants us to see, and this is so important for us, is that he most often speaks to us in a still, small voice. God doesn't usually speak in the big stuff. He he doesn't usually come yelling like an earthquake or a a fire or a wind, but in a low whisper. As Jesus says, "I, I come to speak to you in parables, so those who are not really looking for me won't even find me. I'm coming to speak so those who have ears to hear will hear. I'm I'm coming for those who don't merely hear the word, but they dig deep and meditate on it, think about it, prove to be good soil. I come to speak in those ways, but we miss his voice so often because there is just so much noise up here. Going back to our our self-counsel, because we're more focused on what's going on out there instead of listening to him. Where our, where our, 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 our eyes, I can't say eyes, where our eyes, that's a tough, I'll, I'll have to practice that. Where our eyes, look at that, are more focused on the storm than on Jesus. 
like Peter when he's walking on the water, focused on Jesus, takes his eyes off Jesus, focused on the storm. And again, I have to think that some of us have been focused on the storm a lot over these last 18 months. We get up, we think about the storm. We go through the day thinking about the storm. We go to bed at night, listening to the news, more storm, more storm, more storm. And what God says in this exercise with Elijah is, listen to me. Quiet down, listen to me. Because when we don't, the result is we live on in the despondency of our caves. The gracious reality is that God continues to speak. The issue historically speaking has never been God not speaking. He always speaks. The issue always historically is whether we have ears to hear. Our call in cave-like times especially is to reorient our lives so that we can hear from him again, which begins most often with us taking captive those thoughts frequently uttered by us to us and instead grab onto what we know is true of Christ and who we are in Christ and hear that again and again. To put it a different way, hearing from God again demands that we be still and know that God is God and Jezebel is not. That was the reason why Elijah was in a cave. He had taken his eyes off who is ultimately in control and focused on smaller things. I've asked a few questions already today. I'll ask another one. What's your Jezebel right now? Who or what are you currently giving greater respect to than God himself? What are you running from? What's causing you to hide? What lies are you believing right now and you're building your entire life on it? So restoration, to come out of those times, restoration, number one, calls for reflection, honest self-evaluation, and secondly, it calls us to reorient, to hear from God again. But there's more. It also calls us to retrace our steps. Take a look at verse 15. Remember what we're doing here. We want to get Elijah back. That's what God is doing. So this is number three. Verse 15, I'll just read the first half. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way, uh, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. I don't want you to focus on that second half, just the first. The Lord's saying, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Without pulling out a bunch of maps, what God's counsel to Elijah is, is go back the way you came. Go back from what you're running from. You're on the run, you're living in fear, and you need to return. This is often the most difficult part of restoration. And yet, restoration demands that we deal with unresolved issues. To to not run from them, to not be governed by them, but to enter them, deal with them, and then move on from there. But we fight this, though, I know. We, we want easy restoration. We want to be able to give our gift, leave it at the altar, and not mo- make things right with that person that we don't have unity with. 
We want restoration that's really no restoration at all. But the truth is, borrowing from Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount where he says, leave your gift at the altar, what the truth is is that God doesn't want our gifts most of all. He wants our faithful obedience. He wants our trust. And oftentimes that trust demands that we go back and restore things, go back to where we've, we've come from. Just think again, I've talked about Peter already once, but think about Peter. Think about the restoration of Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times, and like Elijah did, Peter hid too. But where, where Peter hid was in a, a fishing boat. He hid in plain sight. And his restoration, different than Elijah's, took place over, over breakfast. But what his restoration shared in common with Elijah's is that it came by way of a question too. Peter, do you love me more than these? It's telling, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't restore Peter with forgiveness, although he was certainly forgiven, but with a question. Why is that? Why does, why does Jesus mirror with Peter what, what the Lord mirrors with Elijah? Well, the answer is because Jesus isn't merely committed to our forgiveness but our sanctification, our growth, our maturity, a sanctification in Peter's case that required he see the reason behind his denial. Peter, I want you to see that your denial came because you love these more than me. And in Elijah's case, Elijah, you're more fearful of Jezebel than me. For Peter to move on, he needed to go back to that moment. Same with Elijah. I'll ask, how about you? Anything, anywhere, anyone, you need to go back to where if you don't, it will keep you from being the person that God has in mind. Something that I've learned over the years, especially when it comes to ministry life, is that the more certain I am of my call, the more convicted I am to make things right in the past, from my past and even present, even the seemingly small stuff. So I ask, is there anything that you need to double back on that you know in your heart of hearts you need to make right? It's necessary for restoration to be the person that God has created you to be. One other thing necessary for restoration that we see from the life of Elijah, and that is restoration calls us to raise up others, to, to not be on our own. Take a look at verse 15. I'll pick it up halfway through, even though I read it already, and we'll read through verse 16. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be the king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So God, what does God do? God calls Elijah to return, and in doing so, call on the help of others. 
to raise up and send, send out and work with individuals like King Jehu. Who is he? Well, he's, he's noted for a number of things, but one of the things that King Jehu does is he exterminates the house of Ahab at the instruction of the Lord. He comes alongside in the ministry of, of, of Elijah. Elisha, as we know, he carried on the ministry of Elijah after he was taken up. Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind, and although Haziel was king of a foreign country, even he served at a, a role, in a role at times, in the ministry of Elisha. So what is going on here? Well, Elijah is being called to partner and have others share the load and take over one, one day. Not surprising, really. For the most often, for most often, restoration depends on the help of others. Doesn't it? Why, why am I hammering this point? I'm hammering this point because do you remember what Elijah says in verses 10 and 14? He says it twice. He says, I, only I am left. What's God's response? <laughs> no, you're not. You're not alone. It's not only you. There are others. You may think you're alone right now, but, but you know, I've got others who will join you in this task, but if you want to meet them, here's the thing. If you want to meet them, you got to get out of this cave, man. You got to return. Because if you don't do that, this help won't come. Because sure, this, this is what hiding in our caves does. It keeps us from meeting and enjoying, truly enjoying the partnership and fellowship of others. Hiding in caves also affects those in our lives now. Spouses, kids, friends, where we just turn in on ourselves, talk to ourselves, live in that fear, live in that angst, live in that anger. It affects those we lead, those we serve. An unwillingness to consider the deeper questions keeps us from them. An unwillingness to hear from God again keeps us from them. And an unwillingness to return and deal with our pasts keeps us from them too. And instead of walking out of our caves, we stay stuck in them. Season after season, year after year, and all of a sudden a lifetime goes by. And that cave becomes our identity. In uh, the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, Malachi writes that Elijah would come again. Fast forward to the ministry of, of Jesus, and he tells us that, the, that this Elijah-like figure was none other than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet and the one called to prepare the way of Jesus. How, how great was John? Well, Jesus says, of all those who are born of women, John's the greatest, which pretty much includes all of us. So Jesus is saying, John is the greatest outside of me. John is the greatest who has, who has ever li lived. And think about how bold John was. John was bold, man. Call religious leaders snakes, hypocrites. Here's the interesting thing about Elijah part two, John the Baptist. He also got in trouble with a king and queen. Called the king out. 
And the result was he, he was thrown into prison, a prison that turned into a cave, leading to a question that John asked of Jesus by way of two of his disciples. Here's the question that they ask Jesus that John gave them. Are you the Christ? Or should we expect someone else? Absolutely perplexing question. I mean, especially coming from John. John was the preparer of Jesus. John baptized Jesus. John was there when God said from the heavenlies, this is my son, I'm well pleased with him. John was there. John was the one who says of Jesus, Jesus must increase. And I must decrease. But now in his cave, this second Elijah is having a crisis of faith. Jesus, are are you the one? Why? Why would he ask that? Well, a popular answer, and you'll find this answer in, in different commentaries on the text. One of the popular answers is, well, Jesus didn't meet his expectations. That Jesus, he expected that the one coming would be more fire and brimstone, and Jesus was too much grace. So he was bummed out at the ministry of Jesus. I think there is something to that from the standpoint of, I think Jesus blew everybody's expectations out of the water. But I think there's more. I, I think John asks the question because of where his faithfulness to Jesus led him. It led him to prison. I think where John asked the question is as important as anything else. I did this, faithful, prepared the way, spoke into society, spoken even to the sins of our leadership. And what does it get me? It, it led to this. So are you the Christ? Is this what following you gets me? Do you remember how Jesus responds to the, to the question? I have it on the screen for you. Jesus responds by saying this, tell John the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And, and then he adds this, strange, it's a spiritual hiccup. He adds this, blessed is the one who doesn't fall away on account of me. Huh? Dead are raised. Good news is preached, deaf hear, lepers are cleansed, blind receive their sight, blessed is the one who doesn't fall away on account of me. Why would anyone fall away on account of that? The answer is they wouldn't. Why, why you'd fall away from Jesus is by serving Jesus and being tempted to give up based on your current situation. that the one who can raise the dead and cleanse the leper may have you there in spite of your faithfulness. Blessed is the one who doesn't fall away on account of me. That your faithfulness, going back to the first Elijah, yes, led to a hit being put out on your life. Blessed are you 
and is the one who doesn't fall away on account of me. John is questioning Jesus, in part at least, based on his current situation. In other words, the second Elijah was fighting the same crisis of faith the first one had, a a crisis of faith that we're called to fight to. And perhaps a crisis of faith that some of you are fighting right now. So Jesus says, tell John what you see. Tell him to trust in me in spite, of, in spite of what his faithfulness has led to. I am still the Christ. I am still the Christ. Don't fall away. Don't allow this storm to cause you to fall away. I'm still on my throne. I'm still in charge. I, I have to think that, that he may be saying the same thing to you right now. My, my sense in talking to pastors, leading a church again, and talking to people is that many of us are just hanging on. As I said on the front end. So there you go. That's what restoration calls us to. It calls us to reflect, ask the big boy and girl questions. It calls us to reorient. It calls us to retrace our steps. And it calls us to not believe the lie that you're all alone. That there are others out there, but you gotta start moving to enjoy them. As I close, and I will, I need to, I know. I would be a terrible, terrible pastor, a bad teacher and preacher. As we close, and we go into a time of response and we remember the, the death of our Savior Jesus, I'd be wrong if I didn't mention one other cave this morning. The cave that Jesus entered for us. A cave that he was laid down in so we could be freed from ours. A cave conquered uh, a cave walked out of, enabling us to be freed from our past. Empowered, empowered in our present and, and to move forward with a more certain and, and glorified future. So as we go into this time of response, let's take our eyes off Elijah, let's take our eyes off John the Baptist, and let's cast our eyes on Jesus and remember his work on our behalf, enabling us to be restored and restored again. Let me pray. And so we do, Jesus, come out of this text, this amazing, interesting, weird, strange, wonderful, beautiful text, and we want to now cast our eyes on you. Again, the one who did go to, to a cave in our place 
enabling us to be freed from ours. Ultimately, fully one day, yes, freed from ours, but even in the meantime, restored. And we, I pray for people here, and maybe it's only a few, but those needing to be restored. That during this time of response and in the moments and the, the days ahead, that there would be a healing, a strengthening, uh, a time of, of, of thoughtful reflection, perhaps repentance, perhaps relationships needing to be mended. I pray for strength that we would take our eyes off the Jezebels in our life, the storms in our life, and we would direct them to you and begin that even now, realizing grace upon grace symbolized this wonderful meal that you, Jesus, ordained and gave to us, symbolizing this meal. Please do ministry work by way of your spirit in this time. I pray against the enemy that he wouldn't snatch this word from the soil but that we would hold on and prove to be good soil, bearing fruit 30, 60, even 100 times. And I pray for these things in Jesus, your great name. Amen. Amen.